working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Lemuel Hayes, who is currently the drummer for Cindy Wilson of B-52's fame. This is an interesting gig because the B-52s are still active and Cindy's project is a new band with new original material. Lemuel is also active in Nashville, doing live and studio gigs with various artists, including some on Jack White's Third Man label. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes, learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to Patreon.com slash WorkingDrummer. If you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help the podcast going strong, we would appreciate it. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts, stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. I also want to let you know that Working Drummer Podcast is now available through Stitcher. Just go to stitcher.com or grab the Stitcher app, search Working Drummer, and subscribe. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45 and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com Lemuel has had a pretty tough path to his current station due mainly to breaking the crap out of his arm a few years ago and having to rehab it while working at Guitar Center. Uh, but his career has been back on track for a couple years now, and it was great to hear how he made that happen. So here we go, Lemuel Hayes. So you're rehearsing in Athens. Yeah. Um, and you, I didn't put it together until you, you mentioned it uh, a minute ago, but... but Cindy and the B-52s are from Athens. Mm -hmm. I recently interviewed, just a couple weeks ago, I interviewed Seth Hendershot. Oh, man. I owe Seth. Actually, Seth is a very strangely integral to a lot of my, my life. Really? Yeah. How so? And I did. Uh, so he taught lessons at Drums 101, which used to have two locations. It had a location in Athens and it had a location in Gainesville. Um, and way back when, this is 
2005-ish. Uh, the only other... It was just a, a drum shop, period. Uh-huh. And the only other drum shop in the entire state was Atlanta Pro. Right. So you had this place that had a satellite store in Athens, and its main shop was in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And it very similar to um, Forks in the way it developed. It had like a corner in a place, right. in, a, in a general music store that had everything, and then split off to become its own store. And uh, so I was taking lessons from this guy, Billy Williams, and Seth taught all the time, very busy, but he was working at the Jittery Joe's Roaster and uh, was teaching, summer was coming up, and he was teaching marching. Mm-hmm. He did that a ton. Right. And uh, he decided that he wanted to stop giving private lessons. <clears throat> And uh, when he told them that, my instructor recommended me to take his place. So Seth's own, like, arc ended up becoming, like, a a jumping point for mine. Right, right. Um, And this was in Athens? This was in the the Gainesville location. Okay, so... So, like, he was working... I I think he probably initially started at the Athens store, and that's how he met all those guys. And then the Athens store closed... And they just had a larger store in Gainesville. Okay. Which is about an hour, pretty much dead at an hour from like downtown. Right. To their store. And um, I'm from in between the two. Gainesville, Georgia? Georgia. Yeah. Okay, not Florida. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they were there because they're, uh, it's the Hughes brothers that owned it, Aaron and Jesse. And their dad worked at I believe the reason they went there so he's a huge car guy Mm -hmm. like worked for Lanier Technical College Um, when I met them is what he was doing as an instructor for their uh, race program Uh they had like a race car engine building program Uh and they were they were there with him and then they went to school and uh, his dad's from upstate New York but they definitely went to college here. I don't know that they went to high school here. Aaron went to high school or went to college at Georgia State when all right before all the people, the like you know the whole, whole music department from that are now at Kennesaw mm-hmm. were originally at Georgia State. So okay, they had yeah. this amazing music program, and he went there. And uh, Jesse didn't study music. I don't know what he did, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, yeah, so they ended up doing this drum thing, and Aaron also built drums under the AHA banner. Uh-huh. So basically, when it was in Gainesville and all that stuff, yeah, I mean, Seth did that, and then just that that was a pretty big, pretty big turning point for like uh, the ability for me to view this as a, as a career. Right, right. And how so, old were you at that point? Not old enough, <laughs> and, not, and not good enough. Um, <laughs> Let's see, but this would have been. I was probably like. Oh, I was not old. I was probably 22, yeah. 21 or 22. Yeah. I was young. Just taking over a little studio. Yeah. And there, so they had two teaching studios. And uh, at the time, I think Seth was teaching Tuesday, Thursday. And then my Billy that I was taking lessons from, I don't remember what days he was teaching. And there was a guy that taught only on Saturdays. And then there was a guy, I think, that taught Monday and Wednesday. Hmm. So, um, so I thought, but he had a lot of students, and it was 
pretty awesome to yeah. walk in. I mean, it was hard. It was really hard to walk in because he had this one guy that I feel like really got the short end of the stick of the whole thing because <laughs> he was really he was a pretty advanced mm-hmm. student and uh, should have honestly gone to someone else, but <laughs> he was no one else taught the time frame he needed. Right, Seth was the right. only guy, and I th- I think that I really. It, it's. Uh, I hope that that kid's still playing, and um, you know, I, I feel bad that he kind of got sh- shuffled into that. I mean, it happens, <laughs> right? But right. Um, so it wasn't until you took this teaching gig at age twenty-two that you kind of started thinking about like maybe I can make a living with this drum thing. Yeah. What was it up until then? Were you on a different path? Had you gone uh, to school for yeah, something else? Yeah, I was in college uh, studying mechanical engineering. Oh, man. So, um, At what school? Georgia Tech. Oh, okay, yeah. I was a part-time student, and I was teaching. And I was driving. I lived uh, over uh, in the... I lived in the those uh, townhomes right next to the Bobby Dodd Golf Course behind Piedmont Hospital. Okay. Uh, yeah. Colonial homes. That's what they're called. Yeah, they, yeah. Maybe. I don't know if they still are. They're I just moved time. here two years ago, so you've probably spent oh, yeah. way more time here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a staggering amount. So right. um, they're old 1940s townhomes. Right. They are not bad, but they were just, like, really old inside. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, like, really tiny dishwasher, really tiny oven, really tiny refrigerator, right. and... Uh, I lived there with uh, my one of my best friends from <clears throat> from high school, and he went to Georgia State. And it was like you open the front door, and it's just stairs, because we lived on the second and third floors, and that's just kind of how it was built. Oh, so low, you know, like moving in and out was a real. I'm giant sure. Pain. And did but, you have drums at this time, or uh, I had there the only thing I had was an electronic kit. Yeah. Uh, I had one drum set, and I left it at the place that I rehearsed with the band I was in at the time. Gotcha. So I was there was a, a period where I was doing this hour triangle, where I would drive from. Atlanta to Gainesville, which, you know, like I would have to be there for lessons. I'd get there at like 2.30 or right. something. There's no traffic at one thirty going out of the city, really. Right. Or at least in that time there wasn't. And then <clears throat> I'd take, and then once I'd finished teaching at like 7 to 8, I'd take it. It's an hour from the shop to where I'd have rehearsals in Athens, and then I'd drive home at the end of it. And I was just doing this and going to <laughs> going to fucking college. Oh, <laughs> dude. I probably slept about four to five hours a night yeah for two and a half to three years man it was stupid (laughs) it was stupid uh and i you know never to be outdone like i also worked at the the georgia tech radio station which was actually really fun but the only shift i would ever get was um i would get the first hour of the jazz shift and i didn't honestly i was not like i was not the guy to be doing that were you actually djing or yeah yeah i mean because the way the the block shifts work at least at that time at WREK is it just as <clears throat> you've got the the morning block the very early morning block which is all classical music yeah and then it goes to jazz and when you're in those blocks that are just the general ones like that they have a a rotation section where someone is curating it but it's still like huge I mean right. it's, it's like the length of your living room right right and then once Twice an hour, you can go in the vault and pull whatever you want. So, I mean, I it's a staggering amount of stuff, and a lot of it's it's a mix of modern jazz and some reissues, and then some old stuff that's that just whoever this person is that was curating it liked. So, I would 
honestly just put stuff on because I had no idea what anything was. I would just pull one out, look at the record, and pick a song title that seemed good, and I'd play it. And I'd have no idea what it, I'd That's read, great. like who played on it or whatever. That's great because, like you, you, you think about you know DJs and especially jazz DJs, like really <clears throat> intentionally curating their set list and yeah. like this is why I'm playing this and it's one of my favorites. If I did it now, <laughs> I would be that guy. Right, but it's I mean it's cool that you would just given the freedom to just throw something on. Yeah. It's like well. I've never heard this. Neither of you. Let's. <laughs> yeah, but I, I learned a lot. Like I, and there's records that I they have that you can't find anymore. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there was this Keith Jarrett record that was Keith Jarrett solo, and I, that made me a fan. I didn't know anything about Keith Jarrett, and I loved it. And uh, yeah, I, I I can't find it anywhere. Huh. It had to. Have just, it could have even been like a thing that they got sent as promo that then was never released. Right. Uh, I wish I had it. It's kind of like the Colm concert of his. You can only, you can't find it anywhere. You can only find, you have to find a, a vinyl and they're almost always all like in ish shape, mm, you know, yeah, not, yeah. I did find one when I was at Amoeba like three years ago and it's not in great shape, but I bought it anyway. Cause it's just so hard to find. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, you know, like stuff like that. And I remember there was a Charlie Peacock record that had come out around that time. That was really great. And just I wouldn't reading the players, I would have nothing to do. Or if it was if it was a day like especially when we'd come back from some kind of break, you know, you'd have this thing and I wouldn't have homework mm-hmm. or something to work on, so I would just read about the players. Yeah. So it, it was fun. It was a it was kind of forced dormant time. Right. Uh, but I met a lot of great people there, and it was a lot of fun. And and were you into jazz before you did that, or did, did that get you into jazz? I think jazz that game? that helped. Yeah. It forced me to right. kind of be into it. Um, not that I was opposed. I just didn't know anything about it, which I think is really where a lot of people feel about it. Yeah. Especially when they're younger guys. It's, it, it's so it's a staggering amount of stuff yeah. to get in. Even if you said I only want to listen to stuff that let's not even take one of the super big guys, but like I only want to listen to stuff that Grady Tate played on. Right. It's like that. <laughs> man, how many records is that, and how long is it going to take to track down? Yeah. Because they, you know, they weren't always filling this stuff out for the RIAA then, mm-hmm. so you may not have it listed who plays on what unless you just find the records and whatever. So, I mean, it, it becomes this just mountain that is very hard. And and in being in that moment, it, I was forced to play that, and it made me have to just sit and experience it right. and go from there. And did you put pressure on yourself to, uh, like, when whenever you listen to jazz, did you put pressure on yourself to try and understand it and try to like it because it was jazz and did you have this kind of preconceived notion that yeah, I, I need to like <clears throat> embrace all of jazz it's all or nothing I, I don't know that it was all or nothing but I felt like I needed to understand the thrust of what was supposed to be happening yeah yeah uh, and I th- you know it's kind of funny because I kind of Strangely, had a, like a, a an old white man idea of what the of what jazz was supposed to be. It's very it was like a very traditional thing in my mind, and uh-huh. then I will never forget because I and that's mostly what you can find very easily. Yeah, and I would put on some of that and that stuff, and I would be like, okay, well, this is not exactly what I expected, but it was generally in the wheelhouse of what you know was there. And then uh, I will never forget when I heard Bitches Brew because mm-hmm. it was like, oh. <laughs> 
okay, so with this, can we can just do anything. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, it was cool. It was fun. <coughs> but it got me into some... Uh, there was Man, there was this one Miles Davis record. But now I, I, I would have to go through and look at all the covers to pick it out. Oh, oh it's... Um, it's... Well, shit. It's got Spain. It's the Sketches of Spain. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was in rotation towards the end of me doing that shift when my semester turned over and I couldn't do that like jazz section anymore mm-hmm. I had to do something else that that got added in and I remember that was a record too that I, I really really got into I liked it a lot yeah. and that was one of the first ones that I went and bought I bought right. that I remember I bought that and I kind of blew on mm-hmm. the same day yeah yeah so that's how it goes with a lot of young jazzers I think is kind of they, they try to start climbing this mountain and, and consuming this just unconsumable amount of, of shit yeah. Um, but then you lock into one record yeah. or one artist. And that kind of becomes your jumping off. Yeah, point. yeah. And I remember when I was in undergrad, um, I went to Univers- University of New Mexico for two years, and the jazz director there was this great tenor player named Glenn Coster. And he uh, gave a great piece of advice, which it took me years to come back around to. Um, he said, you know, don't don't feel like you got to swallow all this at once. Oh, sure. Don't feel like you got to swallow it all whole. You don't have to like it all. You don't have to understand it all. Find the shit that you like. Sure. And follow that. Go down that rabbit hole. Someone you know? like him, definitely. I I saved it and I would have to find it. But uh, I, there's a subreddit called We Are the Music Makers, and normally can be really hit and miss, just like everything on Reddit. But uh, the guy made this very, very nicely done playlist, and it was jazz for beginners. Mm. And he's like, I'm not trying to make this consumable jazz. This is, I'm giving you what are, in kind of each little area of it, what are the the records. Right. So right. it was a, it's a really good list. And yeah. I there have been things on it that I found that I had never, I just said somehow, you know, it should have been because I really liked the guy that played drums on it. I really liked that sax player and I really liked this. And I should have gotten there and I just somehow never ended up in this record, just fell on the shuffle and I found these records and there's some in that playlist that are really great. you graduate with your engineering uh-huh. degree? Okay, so you bailed on that. So I got, uh, I I will never forget this like decision. I had the semester, and, and this may be, you know, maybe this wasn't the semester from hell if I'd actually finished, but it was actually one of the most stressful semesters. It was definitely the most stressful semester of anything, and I had a lot of them. I, I went to tech two separate instances. I withdrew at mm-hmm. one point because... Um, was very close to my grandparents and uh, on both sides I was very lucky to have all four for most of my life mm-hmm. but in uh, that year all of uh, three of the four died mm. January May and November and uh, the November one was brain cancer and it was incredibly aggressive just instant and mm. so you know I it was really gnarly and the one in May was my grandfather that I saw almost every day of my childhood uh-huh. and um, he our birthdays are one day apart and so it was very close to him and I, I don't think it ever really like smoothed over and when I was there I just I couldn't get a handle on it so I withdrew and I took that the rest of that semester off and then I started back at the I went to the junior college again and just took I thought about maybe you know I didn't know if it was the major or whatever so I just took some other weird electives mm-hmm. but um, the last semester I had there I took 
the two classes that really were the main thing was I took differential equations and I took uh, this one that's called principles of deformable bodies, which is uh, the it's essentially the first class to where you start to learn how to predict how a material is going to like form uh, perform under stress, uh-huh. and you talk about the different kinds of stress, compression. Uh, extension, torsion, shear, heat, uh, cold, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so, and I learned a lot of really cool stuff. But short, this is where the like un, the like dark dark part of every major engineering school starts to show, or really any science school starts to show. It's that a lot of these people are required to teach, but they're actually there because the school wants them for research. Hmm. So I had one of those. For differential equations and another one and the other one for the deformable bodies class and the, the deformable bodies guy couldn't have been nicer mm-hmm. he was a super super nice dude but he was very busy there's a tuesday thursday class i don't know how many tuesday thursday classes there are in a given some given semester but if you take it based on like a school year which is longer it's about 30 classes i think or mm-hmm. 32 classes he missed six and we just didn't have a sub except for one and the sub didn't teach the class. The sub just talked to us about space shuttle tiles, which was cool because I got to touch one. <laughs> but, I mean, like, that was not helpful for a incredible, an incredibly, like, math and concept-heavy course because you would have to really have to show all these, con- these like, uh, I, I remember the final exam bonus, a question, bonus question is, you have a, a cuboid of this size, what shape? Or this, this a cigar shape is the tightest you can pack this box. Prove it mm-hmm. mathematically, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. But he gave me half credit on it, you know. But like that's the kind of stuff that we were having to do, and just and the books at Tech are typically when you get into these upper classes are a book that's normally available. And they chop the sections out that they don't want, and they add sections in. Right. And that's a bad situation. An even worse situation is when your professor writes the book, which is what happens. <laughs> so it's completely disjointed. Right. And so we would be talking about this thing, and he would not in any way approach it the way the book was. He meant for it to be together, but he wasn't – He at no point – in the whole semester, did he ever like stitch them together for it to make sense? And the book was very light on wording and very heavy on just like mathematical examples. <sighs> so uh, that was going on. And then the differential equations professor. Uh, so because I withdrew, I could not drop any classes. Mm-hmm. I was on academic probation because yeah, I basically yeah. had a bunch of attempted with no completion. So I had. Anyway. Right, right. So this professor was a research professor from Israel. And he is maybe one of the largest jerks I've ever met in my life. And he, you know, he, he would expect people to have physics formulas memorized. And the reality of it is, is that really not many people in my class were physics, were required to take physics. They're all math majors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he'd get upset and I just don't remember it. Cause I mean, it's like, it's a really specific physics formula and, um, He'd get upset about that kind of stuff all the time. Anyway, there was one quiz before, like, true drop ad. Like, or not drop ad, but when drop and you not fail the class. Right. You just get a W. Right. Um, and then there were three tests and the final was it. Uh-huh. And I remember the highest grade on any of those tests, anything, was an 83. 
And every single time he handed it out, he said, I will not be grading on a curve at any point. Mm. So it's just going through the semester and I'm looking at my, I, I did well on the first quiz and I got, I mean, comparatively, <laughs> I, I got a 78 and I was like, okay, well, I feel all right about this. And then the highest grade I made after that was a 51. Mm. And so the whole time, you know, and I'm like, all right, cool. This is going to be my last semester because this is going to cause me to have a, a bad GPA or whatever. And uh, my grade comes back as a B plus. Whoa. And it's just one of those, the school just said, you can't fail an entire class. <laughs> you know, like you're doing this and you're the whole time saying, you're giving an unrealistic expectation. And that was his whole thing, was just to give an unrealistic expectation of everything. He wanted right. people to memorize these formulas in case something happened, like Armageddon or whatever. And, and I'm thinking, like, <laughs> look, if, they, if it's so bad that books don't exist anymore, <laughs> then, like, uh, knowing this physics problem isn't going to feed people, man. Right, right. Like, it's just, I, I get, I guess he was, he, I understand what he was going for, but it just felt so myopic. And that ultimately was the theme that I walked away from. Everything just felt incredibly myopic mm -hmm. and not in a way that made sense. So I, I took, a, I learned a ton from doing that schooling mm -hmm. and I still think about it. And I still appreciate it. And I have definitely applied a lot of that discipline and, and things of that nature to my playing. Yeah. And it gives me a very uh, disciplined approach to just being a musician. But uh, I, there are times that I miss it and there are times that I don't. And mm -hmm. most of the time I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's most of the times that I do. I was like, Oh, I could be doing this and like not learning 85 songs for a one gig this weekend. <laughs> you know, that would be good. Yeah. So. But you know, it's either you got to memorize the equations or you got to memorize the songs. It's, yeah. Well, I wasn't memorizing the songs either. In, in the event of Armageddon, those 85 songs are probably going to come in more handy. Just yeah, you know, it's true. Being able to keep true. people's spirits up and yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and I and I didn't even attempt to memorize them. I just spent three days full charting. Yeah, yeah. You know how are you? No one's brain is that good. So um, by the time you so you dropped out of school, mm -hmm. um, and did you was your decision like I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to be a professional musician or was uh, it just yeah, that was the goal yeah. Uh, so the first job I had after that, I moved to Athens then. Uh, I mean, I'd grown up right outside of Athens, so mm -hmm. it wasn't that crazy. Um, but I was playing with a band based out of there. And um, so I moved there and I worked at a press firm, like a music press firm uh -huh. for a while and uh, still taught lessons. Yeah. And I would do side, well, the, the, the side gig, I don't know if these side gigs had started, but basically I did that just until and that ran its course after about a year and then i my parents owned their own company and they wanted someone to do like a little bit of work and so i started doing that and left the press firm uh to do that which was helpful from a money standpoint and uh i was teaching still and then somewhere along the line this woman that was uh she was the chorus director at this high school so in Ga a weird thing about Gainesville it's, it's that's where Lake Lanier is like on one side of it yeah. so there's this very there's a very affluent section of it right lots of money right. lots of doctors mm -hmm. lots of lawyers that make serious money and their kids go to these schools and the schools have a lot of money uh so there were two schools that would regularly do uh musicals huh one school did four musicals a year. Nice. And uh, it didn't pay great, but it paid. And I was already in town, and it was literally 
two minutes from the stop the shop. Right. So I would I got rope. Nobody at the the shop wanted to do it. It literally came down to just, she's like, I need someone. There's five of you, whatever. And I didn't feel prepared. I had never I had never been thrown into that kind of reading. And, right, because uh, like up until this point, you're, you're it's mostly like rock bands and stuff right, like that. And, and I know how to read, but it's not. I've never were, read with an orchestra or read with a conductor. Right. You were in some lessons and in a ton of bands and had done a ton of playing, but you were never in school mm-hmm. for music. Um, but it was a best case scenario because the very first one I got thrown into was not like West Side Story or something <laughs> super gnarly. It what was, was it? Footloose. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's mostly like, you know these songs, but now we're going to have these weird musical, we're going to have these breaks like every musical has where the person like stops to say something and then goes back into the song. Right. But you're playing... The Gloria Estefan, right. which you have heard a million times, or, or this or that. So it worked out, and I ended up... There were some bad habits that were formed uh, from doing it, because it was such a small place. It had to be very quiet. Yeah. So I tend to play too quietly, yeah. which can be problematic now. Yeah, uh, I have the same thing, because I, did, I, was, I was in jazz world for so long, yeah. and I developed that jazz touch with, you know, which... Most of the times in jazz is exactly what you want, but in the last two yeah. years, especially since I've come to Atlanta, I've been playing tons of not jazz, and yeah. I've had to rediscover like rim the- shots, like <laughs> rim shot after rim shot after rim shot. Yeah, exactly. My guy when I started playing drums was Josh Freese. I loved the Vandals. Mm-hmm. I loved the Vandals. And I didn't realize that he did anything outside the Vandals for a long time, uh-huh. which is comically stupid. Uh, <laughs> and um, but he did that Kickstarter where like you could, or it was like a Kickstarter thing before Kickstarter, mm-hmm. or it was right when Kickstarter happened. But you just did it through his website, through uh-huh. basically his manager. Right. Uh, and uh, I paid it. It was a lot of money. It was like yeah, it was a lot of money. It was what it says a lot of money. <laughs> and you, I spent the day with him. Wow. But I knew it was going to come with a snare drum. Well, okay. So I was like, okay, so at least I'll walk away from this with a drum that's worth half, at least half what I just paid, right? Right, right. So uh, he, anyway, so he that was a cool day, and um, he picked me up from, I stayed in Long Beach, and uh, he picked me up, what did we start with? Did you fly to California to do yeah, this? Yeah, wow. yeah, which that was actually, that wasn't. I got lucky in U.S. Airways, which I'm glad is gone. That was a terrible airline, <laughs> but it was so cheap. Yeah, yeah. Because well, it's Atlanta to L.A. There's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I just <laughs> did that back, and it wasn't. I mean, I bought it pretty last minute because the, there was a miscommunication with the manager and I, and, and uh, I bought it only like two and a half weeks out, and it was still only two fifty round trip or Man, something. Boy, you those know, were, like those yeah, those days. days are gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you fly out there like you have a lesson with him. You go to a session with him. You, so like, what we did. I don't remember the order of everything. We had, we ate, we went to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in Long Beach <laughs> with Joe Escalante. I've played gigs at that because there's like a little yeah, club, club attached yeah. to the one in Long Beach. I've played there. Good God. Okay. So Joe Escalante came, bass player for the Vandals. Uh-huh. And he's super Catholic, which I thought that like, because he had, he for a long time he had this hologram pick guard that was the that was pope john paul ii on his base and i thought it was just like something weird and funny for the vandals but it turns out he's super catholic he's for real <laughs> uh and so 
you know, my name is biblical. It's mentioned one time. It's a super deep cut. Right. And he did not believe me. So he, in Roscoe's, he downloads a, an, a Bible app to search it. And he's like, holy shit, you're right. Okay, I stand correct. Wow. So that was who is, fun. Who is Lemuel in the Bible? It's a king that's in Proverbs 31. It's it's not even, like, he is not even, it's basically someone says that he said something. Oh. So, it, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a cut scene. Yeah. In a, the, you know, the, the B story that's going on. Right. I think, I think Zachary is, is a similar reference somewhere in yeah. the Old Testament. But, you know, despite that Lemuel is spelled pretty much, it's got four of the six letters in the same order as Samuel. Right. Everyone thinks it's French. Huh. Because it has L-E at the front. Right. Which is strange but that's how it gets it gets butchered a lot and it's fine but uh anyway so we did that we went to drum doctors to pack his flight cases for a perfect circle gig that he had that was the cases were leaving that day mm-hmm. and that's where i met dave elich he was there mm-hmm. getting a drum that had been repaired and that was cool but it was funny because dave was we pull up and there's this uh station wagon like it's that uh Dodge reissue the Magnum or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, Josh is like, those are my drums. And he's like, wait, that's confusing. They were my drums. DW made them and the colors weren't what I sent them. And I, he was like, I've never been that much of a diva, but it was like specific. It was for a reason for this tour. And I was like, this isn't the right color. And I can't, it's like so close that it's going to look weird. Oh my God. And he's, and um, he's like, I just, I, I'm sorry. And so <laughs> they made him another one. But Dave ended up with it. So it was in Dave's car. And he was like, who is that? And so then we go in and there's this whole hilarious story. But uh, it was fun and that was cool. I got to see like Ava Boreal stuff was there. Joey Waronkers. Keltner has like a giant section of stuff. Uh, Harvey Mason's guys came to pick his stuff up, the Cartage Company or Mm -hmm. whatever. And um, so that was cool. And we went to his house and I saw his studio, um, met his family. And... um, you know, and we've stayed up. He he wanted to hear like stuff I'd played on. I was ironically I was the only drummer that had done any of these. Huh. Everybody else were just like super fans. Huh. So when they we were, were they were super fans of the band of just Josh, yeah. or like they liked that he played with Nine Inch Nails, or they liked <laughs> that he played with Sting, or right. any of that stuff. And right, you know, it was three. It was like a week or two weeks before that. I'd also uh, I'd been because uh, he's a Pisces artist and. Uh, they offered me a Pisces deal. So I, it was like fun to get to share that with him. And then, so anyway, he's like, when we're leaving, finally, he like hands me this drum and it's heavy and it's in like a little five, like tuxedo bag. And he's like, we're at drum doctors. And he's like, don't tell, don't tell Russ that I, that this don't just, just tell him we're taking this. And I was like, all right, cool. Whatever, man. And, uh, we get in the car and he's like, so this is a really expensive drum. And Russ, like I gave this other guy, I'd like a drum. And Russ was like, why don't you just give him some like piece of junk one, man? Like whatever. And he's like, but you actually play. So I want you to have this one. You're talking about Russ. Uh, that Garfield that owns. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That owns drum doctors. Right. And, uh, <laughs> cause he's just milling around and he's kind of like looking around, like seeing what's going on. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a, it's a super solid, right? Right. When they had, come out so he had already had he clearly already had this as like a prototype or whatever so it's flat black uh-huh. it's the thickest one they made and it is the loudest 
fucking drum I own. One of the loudest drums I own. I think it might be louder than the bell brass. It's Oof. it's loud. Lord. Yeah, I mean, I have a P77 on it now, and that makes it usable. <laughs> because you can't, you just can't record it yeah. unless it's a lo- super loud thing. Right, or you're right. just... I don't know. In my experience, I can't. I also don't play a lot of super loud stuff. Like, right. I'm not playing in a perfect circle or right, right. on uh, uh, Avril Lavigne records. So you have this LA day, yeah, with so, all these LA guys, yeah. And, and does so, it, does it give you the LA bug? Uh, I already had that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I already definitely had that. But anyway, like. I play. He wanted me to play some stuff, and we were like, "It's like I don't really know how to do lessons. I'll just show you some stuff." And he wanted me to play some stuff, and he was like, "You don't do a lot of rim shots." And I remember it was a thing that he mentioned, and he was like, "I probably have to. I I don't think I ever not like. I don't. No one ever asked me not to do them." Right. So uh, I remember that was that was where that story was ultimately going. Is that so? Uh, yeah, and I I really. I wanted to move there, and that was actually a, a plan. Uh, I moved to Nashville because I was playing with this guy uh, in his band that was signed to like a subsidiary of New West, and um, he was just like, "I'm going to move there," and I don't know. I just felt like it was time for a change, mm-hmm. and I needed. I wanted to go to the next level, mm-hmm. and LA had been on my radar, but uh, you know, this seemed like it could be cool. Yeah. I'm not really into the country thing, but, you know, I figured I could maybe make it work. Well, and by that time, you know, Nashville was putting out all kinds of other music. You know, it wasn't just the country town. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I guess if you're going to, like, make it on a gig, right? it's probably going to be a country gig. Right. Um, so, I was there. It went sour um, <laughs> with, between he and I. Okay. Um and I put in my I put in my notice, and it did not that did not go well. Um, I gave two months notice, mm-hmm. and um, it got really awkward. And uh, so we just didn't. I also at the time was doing the side job where I was doing three D technical design, just like when they're going to machine this microphone, it needs to be these exact specifications, and I would draw it right. for companies like right, stuff right. like that. I was doing it as all freelance, so it was like oh, I had a freelance job and another freelance job. That's just everyone's stream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was doing that, and then it was Christmas, and everything like that slows down. So I took this this uh, seasonal job. My friend, uh, this guy, these couple of dudes I met worked at Guitar Center, and it was like, you can work seasonally. And I was like, sweet. That sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. For me, at least. Like, I won't even work there long enough to get a discount, but whatever. So uh, I, was, I started, like, December 12th or something, and then was going to work through the end of January. And then, you know, go from, and then that was it. So that was 2014 when I started, 2015 rolls around January and January 19th. So all this time, I it, when I put in my notice and it went really sour, basically, I made the decision I was going to move. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really feeling it in Nashville. It was very, um, it was hard because it's smaller than Atlanta. Yeah. And I really wanted it to be a city. I wanted to live in a city. I like a city. Right. Um, and LA seemed like a thing and Josh had been really he was like you're like you can do things for sure like mm-hmm. I'm not going to throw you into something great but he's like if you need if you get here and you're desperate enough that you want to play in the Disneyland band like I will get you an audition with my dad yeah as a sub I played at Disneyland for 4 years and <laughs> met Stan Freese oh, yeah. on a number of occasions and it was funny because like I 
when I got to LA, I, I kind of thought of Disneyland the same way. Um, just kind of like if you're at the end of your rope and like, you know, well, it's because all... it's way down in Anaheim, right? Right. But just from from like a gig hierarchy standpoint. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for years musicians in LA did think of of Disneyland that way, but by the time I got there in 2010, I got the gig in like 2011, in the middle of 2011. And I would tell people that I, I got this Disneyland gig, and a bunch of guys, especially guys my age, were like, dude, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> no, it's steady money. Yeah. And you are playing pretty much top 40. Right. That was the that was the at least what I was gonna try to get that gig. Right. And then I mean, so you are playing every day and it's gonna make you better. Yeah. Is the way I was thinking. And you're gonna meet all the dudes in the band. Right. And you can use your nighttime. Or whenever your other time to do other stuff. Yeah. So that was the main thrust. And I'd already kind of like talked to him about it. And he was like, yeah, when you get here, you get settled. I had friends that live there. They own a house. They were like, yeah, you come. They, I was like, can you, can I come stay with you and look at some places? And they're like, no, you're just going to come here. You're going to get on your feet and you're going to stay in this guest room of ours. And you're not going to pay us until you can pay us. Mm. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Right. Um, and... So I mean, it just seemed like okay. This is this is supposed to be this way. That's this is way too good of a deal to pass up. January nineteenth, uh, I am downtown in Nashville with some friends, and I'm gonna move the next day. Whoa! But because what happened? I'm gonna move across town mm-hmm. for two months. I have a sublease. Oh, okay. And I ran across Fifth Street, which they were working on uh, on the backside. Of, like, that's where Bridgestone is. Mm-hmm. And I run across the street, and I trip and fall. Or I trip, and half the sidewalk is chain-link fence from the construction. And it's either uh, I don't have health insurance at the time, mm-hmm. or I don't have, like, eye health insurance. So it's either go face first into this chain-link fence or just fall. Like, I can try to continue to catch my like catch my footing and hit this fence face first or I can just fall. So I just decide to fall. I, I tuck my wrists in, um, you know, like where you're the inside of your wrists are facing up and you're like got fists. Right. But all my weight goes on my right arm and, uh, I'm like, mm, uh, yeah, this is not good. And I'm pretty sure. And I just like pure denial right. of what's going on. Uh, and I go home and I go to bed and oh, cause I'm no. just like, I, I'm not going to deal with this. I, this can't be happening. And uh, I wake up and I can't sit up Ooh. because my arm is in like excruciating pain. So uh, I, have a, I have a manual transmission and I drive myself to an urgent care. Now, this guy that I'm living with is my first night. I already moved my bed. I stay at this place I'm, and I've met him twice. Right. And he turns out to be like the best dude ever uh, because I fractured my humerus. This is a <sighs> spiral displaced fracture. And uh, urgent care is like, cool, you need to go to the hospital. And I go to uh, the hospital in the ER, and they're like, yeah, you, I sit in a room, and they're like, yeah, uh, you have to see an orthopedic surgeon. Good God. You, we can't, I, we can't do anything for you. Right. Um, so, but they're not here, like he's booked today, so you need to come back tomorrow. So I go and see him the next day. And then this is where the, like, cautionary tale of someone any musician that like or anybody honestly that breaks anything like i'm in the room and i guess there was another guy in the building that had broken his right humerus through a spiral displaced fracture and he had pins in his wrist so they come in they're like oh we need to x-ray your wrist i was like my wrist doesn't hurt i can do anything i need with it and they were like well let's get an x-ray they gotta see your pins and i was like there are no pins in my body like much less my wrist so they they x-ray it 
And uh, the doctor comes in and he's like feeling my wrist and he's like, where are the pins in your wrist? I was like, dude, I already told the other guy there are no pins in my body. There's no pins in my wrist. And they had my chart mixed with another guy's chart. So, but we had almost the identical like reason we were there, like literally almost identical. Oh shit. And we were the same size (laughs) and everything. So that was really like a warning. It basically, this is like, this is a warning sign of somewhere that doesn't have their shit together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're like, okay, well we can do the surgery on Thursday. We'll call you tomorrow to do the, whatever they call it, where they run through everything with you that the insurance is going to do and how the procedure is going to work and what you need to do and all this other shit. So I was like, cool. Because my options were they try to set it, but it may not set because it's a spiral. Spiral means it uh, it's not broken straight, like perpendicular to the bone. It's mm-hmm. basically an angle. Yeah. And then displace means that it's not together anymore. It's broken enough that they're completely apart, mm-hmm. not in the same like line. So um, Wednesday comes around. We have the whole thing. It's going to cost me... I think it's like five thousand dollars. I have health insurance. I have catastrophic health insurance in the marketplace because I'm 29. And the next morning, roommate who I've known for three days now uh, drives me. I haven't eaten like I'm supposed to. I'm in the parking lot and my phone is just blowing up and I'm like struggling to get out of the car because it's like I only have one arm that works and I'm doing this and the phone's ringing. So I get out and I'm like, all right, cool, man. I'll 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 see you like when you pick me up at like five or Mm -hmm. whatever it was. And uh, uh, I'd lined up all these people because I could. They said I could not be left alone for six, like sixty hours or something. So I'd lined up all these friends of mine to come stay with me in in sections. When my new roommate had to go to work, I'm walking in and the phone keeps ringing. So I finally like fish it out with my good arm, and uh, it's the fucking surgery people, and they're like, so. The doctor's practice as a whole is in your insurance, but the doctor isn't. Oh, my God. So, if you want to have the surgery still today, it'll be $15,000. Or we can try to wait, and we can get an exception, or we can get him into the thing. And I was just like, what? Like, you didn't know this, man? Right, of course. What would you have done? Like, I'm literally 20 minutes from when they're supposed to start this. Right. What what would have happened? Uh-huh. Would I have just you would have done it, and then I would have somehow been on the hook, even though we already had a conversation where you told me how much this was, right? And I just lost my mind. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that I've been more angry in my <laughs> life. And um, because they're they're, I mean, this is you know, in my mind, I'm going to have this surgery, and it's going to be like a normal bone break, and right. I'm going to be back in two months. And if you're talking, you're going to delay or. You know, whatever you're gonna delay me another two weeks. It's two months and two weeks that I can't work. Right. So I just immediately get on the phone and I call my the guy that was my general practitioner in Georgia, and I'm like, "Look, here's the deal. I know there's a place that's down the street from you." And he's like, "Well, yeah, they used to be down the street. They're not actually down the street, or they're down the street, but they only that's only where they do the consults, the new places." Over. I was like, "Whatever, whatever. Just like, what's refer me and give me their number." Mm-hmm. Do all that. I end up having all the surgery and everything in Georgia, in Gainesville, and I have a great dude who grew up, who like grew up in New Orleans, so he loves music, mm. and he was really great. It was a scary time though, because uh, that so they put a plate and eleven pins in my in my arm permanently. Wow! And when they do that, your radial nerve, uh, they have to move it, and then your body treats it as totally damaged. So from the point that it's moved, nothing works anymore until it repairs itself. Oof. So that the radial nerve controls everything on the top of your forearm, 
uh, from basically your like well it's your yeah basically your elbow down right uh, and so I my wrist would just hang and my fingers would be in whatever state like if you just dropped your relaxed your wrist completely the state where your fingers sit is as far as they would open uh-huh. I could squeeze them but I couldn't lift my wrist so I had to wear a brace to keep it straight so that the muscles didn't get screwed up right. by thinking that was their new position right and but you know you wear this brace and then when you wear the brace now like if you just relax your wrist and hold it up you make like a weird sad fist <laughs> yeah. and like uh, that's where my hand was so I couldn't type I yeah. couldn't really use a mouse because I couldn't lift off the button. Oh I could push God. the button. Uh, and I, so anyway, that happens. And, um, you know, Guitar Center, my manager there was where I was doing that thing. And he was really great. And he was like, look, you're more, you're the only other guy that works here that knows as much as you is 40. And like, you know, I'd rather have someone that's here and I don't think you're going to be doing anything else. Right. <laughs> so if you want to work here, I can make sure that you're full time. Wow. Uh, so I did that and yeah. I stayed there for a long time. And even when I was really honestly too busy, they would just let me work whenever I wanted to work because they liked having me around. And uh, uh, it was I mean, it was good. I was there basically for about two full years. So you went from I'm moving to LA. I got all this work and friends. Do I have to up. work at Guitar Center because my arm doesn't work? Not to mention rehab. <laughs> sure. And like learn how to play again. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you, I lost all the muscle mass on my upper forearm. All wow. of it. It was like it's like weird to think about what it would look like. It's I mean it just goes straight to your. I mean you're just following the bone and there's literally nothing. Yeah. You can feel that there's muscle there, but it has no thickness. Right. And it's just, I mean, in a lot of ways, it didn't atrophy, but it looks like that because you're close to it. Right. So, so uh, what was your rehab like? How long did that uh, take? I was able to lift my wrist. I remember the day that I could see, like, so let's see. You can't see it now because I guess it all built back up. But whenever, I remember I would take it off in the mornings and I would stare at it and I would try to think about it. It's weird to want to move something and it not move. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I would just look at it and see if anything twitched. And I remember one day I could see the, like, creases that go kind of in that center part of your wrist that go around. If you feel your wrist, you've got like that little indentation and there's yeah. like an, in the center, I could see like two, like very faint lines in the skin and it would just look like it would like wanted to do something. Right. So that was July of that year. What year is this? This is 2015. Wow. Uh, so it's July. This happened in January. So it's right. July when that happened. So it basically just like cruised around and did nothing. <laughs> Uh, drank too much and like went to shows and went out and whatever just didn't because I there's nothing else to do I right, can't right. I set my kid up really weird and tried to play everything with my left hand and I would play some of that it made me a different player I tried to use the time to examine uh, I could only play stuff that was really simple mm-hmm. so I tried to say like okay well why is this working and I tried to study that because just going from there and um, I did three gigs when it was up i could just couldn't do anything that required any kind of if you just needed me to meet out eighth notes i could do me i could do that so mm-hmm. i did this gig for this guy that lives here it's a really good friend of mine john gladwin mm-hmm. uh his project is the last tycoon i played his cd release with a broken arm which has the amazing evan hutchings uh who's uh he evan's a major major up-and-coming dude in the like nashville session the mm-hmm. world now but he and john grew up together along with mike rennie who plays bass mm-hmm. they all grew up in like 
nowhere Arkansas. Right. And Mike Rennie is currently on tour playing for Miranda Lambert. Wow. So it's like these dudes went to like they did it. And yeah. that's that's cool. So anyway, Evan played on Evan and Mike played on John's record and so I played the show. It was difficult. <laughs> uh, but I did it and he was happy. Yeah. And he was like I think it was cool. And um uh, then I played this gig. My friend got married, and my gift to him it was that we were supposed to play. Like he played in this wedding cover band with us, and we were just gonna play without him. And that was our gift to him, mm-hmm. just like no money. And uh, so I did that, which it was very hard to play "Hungry Like the Wolf" with a <laughs> totally screwed up right hand because you just have to meet it into the snare, too. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. just, you know, it's not a good situation. <laughs> And uh, though, but I did agree to this gig in March. It was too big for me to walk away from. My friend was playing. So this was like two months after you. I agreed to it, yeah, because I just also thought it was going to be a way faster turnaround time because they weren't super clear on how long it could truly take. Right. And mine went to the end of it. I was basically like one week away from going to see the the nerve specialist to schedule another surgery to manually repair the nerve. So it took longer than it should have. Yeah. Or it was I was on the far end of the spec of the right. normal spectrum. And I agreed to this gig, and he was playing for Olivia Jean, who's on Third Man. And uh, she was doing some, like, pretty big gigs, and this gig was just... It was a gig in Indianapolis. They had, it was labels paying tour support, so it was, like... It was good money, especially for a guy who couldn't do it. And I was like, I'll be better by then, and I really wasn't. <laughs> but I just didn't tell anyone. I bought a really nice carpal tunnel brace, uh-huh. and I gaff-taped it. And I went to the rehearsals, and uh, we, the rehearsals were at... Jack's Jack White's studio. Wow. And I shook Jack White's hand with my left hand, like reached over his hand. <laughs> and no one at any point asked what was wrong with my hand. Right. Until we were done. It was three days of rehearsal. And at the end, I was with her and we were packing up. And she's like, what's that brace on your wrist for? And I just straight up was like, if I take it off, my wrist does this. And it just drips down. And she was like, what? And this gig that I agreed to is in Indianapolis and it's opening for Pixies. Yeah. And so I'm going to go do this. And uh, so, you know, it worked out and it was all fine. I actually, that that gig was kind of easy to do. There's not a lot of like fancy hand stuff. So I was able to just like make it work with two hands. And it was, it was good practice and it was a a good experience. We had a, the Cindy Projects had a Libya open uh, a run, Mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun. And it's great. It's a great vibe. Olivia's stuff's pretty heavy, but yeah. So uh, this this reminds me of uh, uh, Cinderella Man, like when Russell Crowe breaks his hand and he gets the cast and he has to paint it with shoe polish so he can go work on the dock. Yeah. And and like nobody, <laughs> you know, like the dock foreman immediately comes up and says, "What's with the goddamn hand?" Yeah. But nobody at the studio, nobody in the band was like. <laughs> yeah, nobody. Like, I I guess it was just. I mean, I brought. I was playing these. Uh, I think I was playing two. I was playing a root, uh, like 18 inch bright hi hat. So maybe it was just that it was like they were loud enough that everybody didn't think it was like a thing. Right. They just thought like, oh, he can do this, and maybe yeah. he just like has like uh, he's having some issues or something. But yeah. I mean, I didn't screw up anything. Right. Right. So no one was really that concerned about it, and uh, yeah, I mean, but Amazing. it was a scary time uh, for sure because you know you don't really know still like what the recovery you know it, it, it's clear you know July rolls around it's clear that this is going to come back right. or it feels like it is but you don't know like is it going to come back forty percent is it going to come back fifty right a hundred do you still feel the effects of it or is it- uh I, I, I'm very lucky knock on the table here um, I 
I, it's been a, I would say it's been pretty as much of a full recovery as should be expected. Mm-hmm. I, I probably never gained, like, before all this, I was doing this gig where it was, like, pretty hard and pretty fast playing. So a lot of hi-hat, just, like, banging out eighth notes just super loud. And right. I had, I had, I had, like, pump forearm. And I, <laughs> and I have never been asked to do that again. So, mm-hmm. like, I don't have it. Uh-huh. Uh, so with that exception... Uh, I would say that I pretty much have been there. The only, I mean, I have like a really gnarly scar. Yeah, it is gnarly. And I have a big, you can feel this like nod, nod, nodule that sticks out where uh, you can feel bone and plate at the same time. Uh, and like every once in a while, I'll sleep strangely. It's pretty much what only happens. The only time it really ever hurts that enough to be worried about. Yeah. And it's only happened three times since then. So yeah. I just, it's like always some kind of, I knew it was a weird sleeping thing. But I do worry about it on tour because, I mean, there's a lot of weird sleeping things on tour. Yeah, for sure. But it mostly tends to happen with really hard, crappy beds. Mm. And uh, if I, normally if I just take it to a leave, any time that that's ever happened, it's gone in two hours. Right. So, and it never really hurts to just like move my arm or do stuff. It's almost always exclusively like when I need to lift my arm over my head, it just feels like there's a section where someone's just like sticking up like a nail through my arm. Uh, Lord. And it's not great. And yeah, it's weird because yeah. it's like such a very specific position that it hurts so badly. And if I like rotate it, I mean, you can't like get above your head that way. But if I just like rotate it a different way, then it doesn't hurt. And I don't know if it's because so the pins go straight through the bone and they stick out the other side. They're not like screwed in and then flush on one. So it, it's probably that I'm putting when I sleep strangely, I'm putting pressure on the pins and it it hurts the it like basically bruises the muscles. Yeah. And then when they slide across it, when I'm moving in a certain way, that's when it really hurts. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly, dude. You were a bionic man. Yeah, Weapon X. <laughs> so this injury uh, sounds pretty much like changed the course of my entire plan. Totally, and and it also changed the kind of drummer you are. Yeah, um, yeah, for so, sure. So by the time you get done with rehab, you're still in Nashville. You're working at Guitar Center full time, and LA has just like faded into. I lost all gig income. Right. And Guitar Center pays garbage. Right. Um, Without getting too much into it, this is when they shifted back from, if you know anyone that works there, anyone out here listening works worked there then, they had what they called phase two, which is where they shifted away from commission, and everyone was getting paid a flat amount, and if you were, like, from, if you bridged the gap in that time, they adjusted your hourly pay based on your co- an average of your commission, basically, right? Uh. But for a new guy, you got started at eight ninety, dollars mm. uh, and you didn't make any commission, and so I was just there and making nothing money. Right. So, uh, you know, now they're back in the commission world, but it doesn't work like it did initially. It's a, a, uh, still a complicated thing, but it's nowhere near as complicated as it initially was. So, anyway, um, I had to sell. I sold a ton of gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have seen Lady Antebellum since 2015, you have heard my 17-inch giant beat hats that I sold to Chris Terrell, <laughs> who I did not know. He bought them off of Reverb. And I was going to ship, and I was like, dude, I will just drop these off. Right. You just live like 20 minutes away. Uh-huh. And he was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm not going to be home. Just mail them. And I was like, cool. And, oh, you can mail stuff at Guitar Center as an employee. Super cheap. So uh-huh. I was going to do that. And uh, he shows up at Guitar Center. And we've never met. But he, like, gives me, a, you know, they ask you they ask you for your phone number. Uh-huh. And I do. And he, like, gives it to me. And it comes up. And I'm like, I see the name. And I see it's the same address. And I'm like, hey, this is super weird. But you bought some 17-inch Giant Beats on Reverb? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I sold. They're mine. This is why I'm selling them. 
gesturing to my arm. Yeah. And I'm like, they're in my car if you just want them. And I charge like, because reverb, you have to charge flat rate shipping or whatever. It's like 25 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we go outside, he gets something, he wants me to tell him about the whole arm thing. He's so, so nice. And every time he came in after that, he'd want to work with me because uh, he just like, he knew that it helped my numbers and he was just a genuinely nice man. And, uh, uh, he's ended up, he ended up buying another symbol later on, much later on, a year or two later, but he refused to give me my shipping money back, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's 20 bucks, but like when you make eight ninety an hour, that's like pretty yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was just mostly the gesture more than anything. He absolutely would not let me pay him the money back. And, uh, so, you know, I'll never really, that, it, it, that ends up becoming like a kind of fun little triangle story that I'll like get to it eventually. But so I, I sold it a, an insane amount of gear a lot of it was very very rare mm-hmm. like 17 inch giant beat hi-hats were a special order that i bought from a, an endorser who that was the only way that he could get them made right uh, now they make 16s which are pretty close yeah yeah uh but uh so like all that stuff and i was working guitar center and then like i could play again in the first tour the first tour i did uh was with this guy jp harris who um very very kind very super professional it's on the bottom end of like it's it's in the middle of the country world where he's really really sought after for that traditional country thing mm-hmm. and he's very good at it mm-hmm. but i did this run with him and uh the only that's the only time i've ever had a problem with the arm was that tour because he was playing we were doing fireman that george Strait song but he likes to play it like punk speed <laughs> and that song is record recording is like 247 but we do like six solos that swap oh. between guitar and steel. So at the end, like it might, it just, I can't, it, right. I can't, it, the arm stops. Yeah, it just yeah. like won't move. Right. So I have to switch. And I was stupid on that gig at that particular gig. And I put both of my ride cymbals in a weird position to the right because there's pretty much no crashing except it's shouldering the ride. And so I'm playing like riding my left hand across the kit, like, in a really uncomfortable gesture and slamming my right hand into the back beats because there's no other way to do it. Right. It was not great. But he <laughs> kept hiring me, and I played with him a lot for pretty much a, a, over a year, and he was great. So I loved kinda, playing with him. It got you over the guitar center hump. Yeah, like, well, kinda. yeah, I mean, I still was working there in between tours, but that was kind of the thing. And so with the money being gone... Right from no gig income and all the medical expenses, and I was driving to Georgia for these medical treatments. Right. Um, you know, I'm not. I try to be financially smart, and I wasn't just going to move to LA with no money. Right. Uh, so I, um, I was basically trying to save money, and then um, it, it just stopped making sense to do it because at this point now I have this like pretty steady gig and these other gigs keep coming mm-hmm. and uh, the Cindy thing actually looked like it was going to do something now that, and that sounds a lot worse than I think it is intended but we'll, we can do that little run in a second so yeah I just ended up uh, it just made sense to stay so where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. 
Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I met Cindy 2009 when her son Nolan, I think it was 2009, her son Nolan turned 10. <laughs> and her husband, he was really, Nolan loves, at the time was huge, 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 huge George Harrison and Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. So her husband reached out. He wanted a Beatles cover band for his party, uh, for Nolan's 10th birthday party. And if he could hire an Athens one, he would way rather hire an Athens one because right. that's where they both went to college, or he went to college, and that's where he met Cindy and the Bees. You know, initial lives were so uh, we were the only one that played basically the era that he really liked, which is the early Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went to this party. Uh, <laughs> Brian had this very harrowing tale the night before, where he basically like fell asleep while rafting down the. Uh, while tubing down the um, Broad River in Athens and missed the takeout point, mm-hmm. or they had already taken the sign and lost track of like he and the other person he was with, and he basically spent the night with helicopters searching for them oh, on the Jesus. banks. This is right before this, like, what we feel like is going to be our big, our big break, right? So that's how that day starts. It goes really well. They love us, and they that was July 10th, I think, is when his birthday is, and uh, they ask us to do their Halloween party. So we do their Halloween party, and like a month before that, he's already he already's like it's happening. Put it on your calendar. We want you here. So and then like a month before, he's like, Cindy wants you to learn two songs. So we learn. I put a spell on you. This very specific performance from Screaming Jay Hawkins, and we learn this. I do not remember which Captain Beefheart song it was, but so she sings those songs, and we we learned them, and someone there. At the party, because these parties are huge, man. They're, they have like a massive house, and it's definitely a neighborhood-like thing. Right. It's, a whole neighborhood comes in. Right. It's kind of like this. This you're like so your neighborhood's kind of. Yeah. It's pretty sizable. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then someone there is put in charge of orchestrating this uh, REM 30th anniversary celebration that's going to benefit the Athens Food Bank. And they ask Cindy to play, and she's like, "Well, I don't have a band." They say, "Well, why don't you just get those kids that played at your Halloween party?" And so. She asked us to be her band, plus this guy that, like, Keith, this Keith's, uh, her husband's, like, they grew up together, and he was in the first incarnation of a solo thing she did in the mid-90s after Ricky passed away, or early 90s, early to mid-90s, and uh, never really, they never released anything, but he's a good dude, Paul Scales. So it was us and him, and they then they were like, well, why don't you be the headliner? So everybody else played three to four, like, R.E.M. songs, and then we played three, we think we played, like, five or six R.E.M. songs, and then we could just play whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. So we learned a ton of 60s psychedelia, psychedelia, like Strawberry Alarm Clock, Music Machine, all this, some that you know and some, like, that I have never heard. Right. And we do all that, and some of it's pretty early to learn, and uh, then someone that's at that is the... Uh, special events coordinator at the time for the High Museum of Art. Yeah. And this is six months later, maybe, at most. And they're going to have the Salvador Dali exhibit. Wow. 
and they want a special party for investors, so they approach us to play all those same psych- 60 psychedelic songs yeah. for that, which was a surreal experience because they spent money on this thing. There were like Cirque du Soleil gymnasts, Oof. people on stilts walking around the high. They yeah, had yeah. women in the like these crazy floral costumes where the flowers went all the way around their head and they just had this like little slit that they looked through that was completely hidden unless you were just like right on them wow i mean it was crazy and it was a great gig and it was a lot of fun and then the b-52s got really busy and uh you know she kind of had always the whole time and really wanted us to do some stuff we did maybe one other show same kind of deal and then um and then they that year they were really busy then they took a year off and she got really serious about it, said she wanted to write some songs, and, you know, Ryan called me about it, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, of course I'll do it. And I still lived in Georgia at the time when this, I don't know what, this is, I guess, 2012. And, um, you know, I I just know how this kind of stuff can be, and I'm not going to count my eggs before right. they start. So uh, then, you know, they write some songs, and I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, hey, we booked a day. Uh, can you, or we booked like a few days I want you to come in and play drums. So I came in, I played drums. The first song we did was Things I'd Like to Say, which is on the full length Mm -hmm. uh, that just came out. And uh, it's a junior-senior song, I think. Uh, There's two, there's a few covers. I don't, I can't keep, there's two of them that I didn't know before this and I just can't keep straight who it is. Anyway, we tracked that. And I, you know, I don't, and then, you know, then there's an original like a like months later, mm-hmm. so I go back in to track this new original, and that's ballistic. So, um, which isn't on the record; it's on the second EP uh, that we released. And so all this just then it eventually just hey come play on this. We just threw paint on the wall, and uh, then you know I didn't think I still didn't think anything would happen. Didn't think that you know bees got busy again and it got harder to do stuff. And but it's the only record that I'm on pre and post arm break or pre post pre during and post <laughs> so i there's a couple of songs where the two-handed hi-hat is recorded separately uh-huh. and i recorded it with just the wrist brace and i just played it so and it's tracked so kick and snare were done separately toms were done separately you know like killing joke style right right and uh so that's that's one reason it's kind of special to that record is very special. It took a long time to do. It was mm-hmm. over a lot of heat, a lot of time, and then Sterling Campbell came in and did. Um, he I played on everything, and then I played multiple takes over everything because we're mm-hmm. throwing paint at the wall. Then right. he comes in and he plays over almost everything, <laughs> and then you know we're like, well, what do we want to play it on? What do we want to do? And then it's like, well, why don't we just stack this? So every song has a minimum at any point two drum tracks. If there's drums happening, there's two drum tracks, with a, a couple of exceptions. Right. Uh, but that's pretty much how it is. So that is also the reason I have a totally wacky setup for that gig. I'm playing two sets of hi-hats, three snare drums, and two toms, and just two cymbals. Huh. But it's all because it has these, like, I will use a really tiny snare drum, and that's going on with a normal one, or then there's a tambourine snare. So I've got those kind of set up. and Right. It's a really strange orchestration, but that's how that all happened. And then, you know, I we did a couple shows. So the set is trying to to mimic the the layered orchestration that you did on the to a, to a degree. Yeah. It started out to be I wanted to play the exact things to the most of my human degree. Right. 
you know, try to just be really Simon Phillips about it. And uh, that became not possible, actually, because of the first song we recorded, because it's got this beat that goes on under it, and then there are these tom fills over it, and there you cannot keep 16ths on the hi-hat, and it sound the same if you're playing fills between it. And they, there wasn't, the fills were too too difficult to do one-handed with the spread and yeah. everything. And it just, it became like it was going to sound, I, I only wanted to do it if it wasn't going to sound like garbage. Right. So. Right. Um, that's, I think that's the case with a lot of, a lot of gigs, a lot of songs. Like you, you know, when you're, when you're playing it live, you end up having to approximate what's sure. on the record. Yeah. And in a live setting, you know, often the approximation is, is, preferable yeah. to you know because like you said if you try to if you try to play it exactly yeah. like it is on the record then it's not going to come off no it's not designed for a live performance no um i i've dealt with that a lot and and it has to do with with beats and coordination and tone and sound yeah um and and it also to some degree the the question it starts to become a question like a and this it becomes an artistic direction question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to say, like, I remember, I will never forget this interview I read with Manu Kache where he's talking about recording his first, that first solo record that he did, which is amazing. It's so good. Everyone that plays on it is, it's so tasty. Anyway, but then there was a live performance that I watched the whole thing that was on YouTube forever, and I don't know that it still is, but man, they shred. And it's way like they're the same songs, but everybody can like goes right. And um, he, someone asked him about that, and he said, "Well, yeah, I want them to be different, but re- like reference one another. But the reality of it is, is that I'm if you play too many, if you play too much on a recording, it takes longer for it to gel with people. Mm. And that was." That was huge mm-hmm. because it's that's just more information, right? And so he said it also gives you an incentive to come to the show. Like it becomes this double this feedback loop between them, where they right. become uh, like almost binary stars instead of the recording and the the live being like a moon around it. Right. It, it creates two entities that are working together. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it because like if you're if you're if you're playing live and your goal is a recording. Then he's he's saying if you're playing live, your goal, your attention should be on the other musicians on stage, the room you're in. Yeah, the it audience. should be like, like find that. Yeah, don't do, try to find it, a recording. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, and that was in my mind, and but I still wanted to do this thing because there are there are there are tracks with it because we were, I mean it's like four of us recorded it, but it's we had we brought in strings, we brought in these other people, and they weren't mm-hmm. there. So we did a couple shows. We did a, we did four shows. We did San Francisco, L.A., New York. Maybe it was just those three. Oh no, and we did one in uh, Athens. And uh, I like that. San Francisco, L.A., New York, Athens, and Athens. Well, so the Athens show was first. It's like a sea leg show, I right. think. Or no, no, no. L.A. was first. We were trying to get a deal, like someone to put it out. Uh-huh. And. Uh, you know, it wasn't a bad show then, but I think that what it had transformed into, which basically that was November, December. I was so busy that that sector. I was playing with this band, Dead Horses, out of Milwaukee. That uh, they did the record with Ken Coomer. They'd never had drums in their band. This was their third record, I mm-hmm. think. And he produced and played drums on it. And they needed a guy, so he recommended me because it was a lot of like shaker and percussion and 
whatever. So I was doing that, and then I was flying to Cindy gigs in between everything. Mm. It was totally crazy, and didn't feel like it was that great, and we kind of had some early shows around. Then we decided we're going to hire a guy to be like a press person and try to get his people to come, and we're going to do this, and he's going to curate this show, this run to South by Southwest, and we're going to try to see if we can get a label there to get some interest. So we do this run to South by, and that, it kind of starts to like figure itself out we're still a little bit in that world but it's the most shows we've played in, like in a dance thing and um it, around that time sterling campbell calls me and he's looking for a drum tech and they need to know ableton inside and out mm. is his like main requirement and so uh i was like all right so i ask around and i can't find anybody that's available that knows ableton so then i just told him that i'd sub if he needed me and so then I started doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, so they have, they, the bees run some level of tracks. Where it could just be a metronome, which is true for a lot of the older stuff. And there's some that, like, you know, they have horns and stuff on the recording. And so right. they're trying to do some of this or that. And uh, I watch, he doesn't play, he plays the same idea, you know, every night, but it's not, he's not locked into playing a thing. Uh-huh. And he's, He's going to town sometimes, and so I, I was watching that, and I was really into that uh, Meliana record with Brad Meldow and uh, Mark Juliana, and I was really into uh, what was this other? Oh, this uh, 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 it's, it's called Black Focus. It's a uh, what's that band's name? It's like two guys' last name. It's uh, Kamal and something. They're these British dudes, mm. and this record's like this great kind of like almost break beady jazz thing that's super hip mm-hmm. and uh it's just kind of chattery is the way i guess i would describe it so then i just put all that together and i just started playing the set that way and huh. no one said stop so i kept going and it kept getting crazier so now i mean i now it's like a whole the, the drums are just a whole different thing yeah. and uh I still am playing the main thing and took that, took what I learned from watching Sterling do this night after night and just tried to apply it in that same ethos and give it life, Mm -hmm. make it, make it human. Yeah. Yeah. So every night's a little different. There's like a solo section and we play the song frenzy. It's just like, there's like a quarter note kick drum going on under it. And there's, I don't think there's on the record. I don't think there's any like drum things. And I just decided, cool, I'm going to play a little solo thing here and keep the quarter note going. And so now that's a thing. And it just, it, it morphed and no one said, don't do that. Right. So I am, here I am. And the other thing about this band that I I found interesting is like when I, when I, when you first came on my radar and it was like, he plays with Cindy Wilson, I thought maybe it was, you know, because there are these gigs all over the place where there's a, you know, a, a pop star of years past who yep. is still doing their material and, and whatever, but they just they hire a band full of hired guns yep. and they go out and do the shit and they play the city winery and wherever else and yep. and people dig it and that's a gig. Um, but it seems like with Cindy, this is this is a new band. I mean, it's like you said, it's under her name, but it's kind of a, a it's a band. It's a band. Yeah, and she we do not play B fifty two songs. Right, that is a rule. Right. The only way she would ever consider it would it would have to be a song that no one else, neither Fred or Kate, sang on. She would have to be the only vocalist on that B fifty two song, and we would have to completely rework it to sound like what we are doing. Right. That's the only way she said that she'll ever do it, and I get that. Yeah. Not only because she has she already done that, 
the bees are still touring. <laughs> like, there's no right. reason. And I, I, you know, I think a lot of people like the idea of it because, and, and people fall into it because, you know, and especially in the case of, let's take the B-52s, they now have all three had solo careers. Right. And I don't think any of them ever, they, I'm almost certain none of them ever played any B-52s material unless the same thing, they were the only vocalist on it. Mm-hmm. That seems to be an understood agreement between them with one exception where, uh, when I played with Cindy at Chastain, uh, it was for the Chastain Park Conservancy that owns Chastain Amphitheater, and it was a fundraiser. We got paid very little, but uh, Fred was asked to be the MC. So Fred and Cindy were there, and we did Love Shack, which is I don't think ever happened without a member, unless that member, like, because Cindy was gone while she had her kids for mm. a while. So that's a very, very rare thing, and they all had a meeting and discussed it, and and so that was cool. It was great to to be a part of that, right? Um, and to see that shows you the power of a hit song in crowds because we were playing other songs that people knew. We it was kind of just a bunch of covers. I start that, and we had horns, a horn section for that gig, and I played the the part. And the only thing I did differently is she wanted it to be. She was like, "Why don't we just go full Motown and just do the four on the snare." So the whole song's that way. Yeah. And, I mean, I start it, and the guitar comes in, and every single person stood up. Yeah. And yeah. no one... I mean, it's that's crazy. And it's so... It was cool, but I, I... I think that if I did that, I would not want to do that every night unless it was the B-52s. Right. I, I completely understand, like, where she's coming from with that. Yeah. And uh, so it also... Because, I mean, you know, it allows her the space to really do whatever she wants and not feel... She's got to do this thing. And then also, it helps keep B-52 shows special. And, I mean, honestly, if you're talking, thinking from like a money way, then people those tickets cost more. So, it's not right. like they can just come to her show and pay like $15 instead of $60. Bucks, yeah. You know, like, and you're not, and you're not getting a, you're not diluting a product in any way or any of that. So, that's definitely a rule and, sh- and I like it. It makes my life a lot easier. It would yeah. be especially that I tech for Sterling, it would be super weird for me to play those songs. Right. Not on, not like in the gig for mm-hmm. that. It would make me feel really uncomfortable at this point, I think. And you still tech for him? Yeah, yeah. I'm still doing that. Uh, their schedule's really erratic because, mm-hmm. I mean, they're all... Cindy's the youngest of right. the main three and she's right. 60-ish. Most, most, 60. I think most bands' schedules are fairly erratic. Like, the, you know, there are some yeah. that you just see out constantly, you know, sure. but on, on multiple levels... Uh, most a lot of bands I see are just like, oh, we're going out for this little thing, and then six weeks later, oh, there's another little thing. Well, and theirs is a lot of one-offs, right? For right. just this or that, or there's two shows in a row or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I did between that and Cindy. I I was gone. I just did my taxes, which if you don't guys don't know about doing your taxes, uh, you can write off every night that you're not home. Yep. You, I hope you know that. Pro yep. tip. So I was calculating all of those, and uh, it was over 200. Wow. Which is crazy. That is crazy. Between them and all the other gigs I had, because last year started with, played with this girl, Michaela Ann, who's very nice, and her husband's a drummer, and when he's unavailable doing other something else, I sub yeah. sometimes. And then I went out with uh, my very good friend, Zach Schmidt, who's an Americana guy out of Nashville, mm-hmm. and I get to play with... Uh, Great. Adam Kurtz on steel and guitar. He does both double duty and Stu Bond on that. Those are guys are they're that's one of the most fun, like 
two week runs I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Uh, You're road dogging it, man. Oh yeah. Good then, lord. Who did I do? Oh, and I did Dead Horses, my last thing that I ended up doing with them because the the B fifty two schedule conflicted too heavily, mm-hmm. and they had they ended up having a lot of dates, which I'm very happy for them. And they've got a new guy who is we're very different players, but he's great and. Um, so their record comes out, but I'm on two songs on their new record that that got announced last week. I don't remember the date, but uh, I was doing all that, and then Cindy shows. We went to South by with Cindy, and I played two shows at South by with Thayer Serrano, who's in Athens. Yeah, I know about her. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. lives. Yeah, you probably know Marlon. I love Marlon. He's, yeah, he's been on the podcast. Yeah, I did a gig with Rick uh, Lawler last week. Oh, I love those guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Marlon played on her record, so I learned his part. There's no hi hat on her record, which is fun. <laughs> I love. Records did, like it, that. did it Tom Waits style, huh? Uh, you know, no. It's uh, it's actually all. If there's any time, there's only one song he did where it's got this weird bell thing that's like a decrescendo back into a crescendo. That's a superimposed triplet, <laughs> which is uh, and it's in six. And that's a cool jam. And then almost all the rest of it's like some like Soundgarden like Tom thing, but in a totally different setting. Wow. <laughs> so it's it was a lot of fun. And I've done another record where there was no hi hat that I did with this guy in Athens that was called The Viking Progress. I actually love that record a lot. I'm really happy with how that one turned out. Cool. Uh, But anyway, so I was doing all that and Cindy and then the B-52 start. And then, so now what that means is that I see Cindy all the time and I'm just like, this from basically June until November of last, no, no, I mean all year. I was locked in a schedule with her. We did B shows. Then at the end of June, we did a Cindy run and then I flew to her and I flew directly from that to a B-52s two B-52s gigs and then went home I was home for like a week and then went back out with her then August was almost all B-52s and September and then uh, and October and then I had some other like fill-in shows with folks and then <laughs> there was a run at the end of October where we did San Francisco another gig and then they were going to do two dates in Solano Beach that blended into November but they had initially said we're not going to work in November so I booked the first vacation I've taken in years and I went so I did the gigs I could do and then had to get a sub drums like this guy that subs for me on that from the tech gig to sub those and I flew across the world for my vacation and then I came back and immediately went to Georgia to start a tour with Cindy for two weeks and came back had Thanksgiving went back out and we were out with her that whole project from November 28th I think 29th something like that until I didn't get home until December 18th wow I just want to point out that, that everything we've talked about for the last 25 minutes is predicated upon you playing a bunch of Beatles songs yep. at a 10-year-old's birthday party yep. in 2009. Yeah. Which, <laughs> which you know, that kind of... I was listening to, on the way over here because uh, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Travis McNabb. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a podcast with him. And he talked about how he ended up getting the Sugarland gig because he knew Christian Bush from years before yeah and it was like you know it just that's just how it happens man yeah it's not this isn't li- nothing about it linear right right and the, like the things in your control are be nice don't suck and pretty much that's it it seems like the rest of it is kind of like either either you play that birthday party or you break your arm or like yeah. it's <laughs> yeah and I mean you know to me it's also like yeah this will be cool 
you know, it was pretty surreal to go to her house and there, there's like, oh, there's a letter from Bill Clinton when he was the president congratulating them on like their massive hit song Love Shack. And then there's a platinum record and then there's a platinum record for Australia and there's a platinum record from every major thing. And it's so crazy. And then, you know, and then there's two guitars that were Ricky's that are on the wall. Wow. Her brother that passed away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like... There's just so much history, and it's it's been really cool to be a part of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. It's a it's a pretty weird thing, <laughs> you know. I didn't ever. Th- I honestly didn't know if it would. I guess what I was getting at earlier too is I just never actually thought that the record would come out. Mm-hmm. That's not uh, because I didn't think it was good enough. I, it's just like I know how people's schedules can be. I know right. she's older. She has a family. She has two children. She has this band that still tours. I mean, it's just like the odds weren't. If she wanted it to come out, there was going to have to be a label to put it out, and she was going to have to want it. Right. You know, and and I don't I don't think a lot of artists would do that. Right. At that at that current state in their at that state in their game. Right. And if it's gonna come out you gotta you gotta go play. Like yeah. she, you know, if she's not game to go out on the road and play some shows, yeah. why bother putting the record out? Right. And so I mean and we the guy we ended up hiring, you know, Dan who I'm sure you ended up interfacing with, um, you know, Dan was Dan was great and we ended up hiring to be a, him to be our manager and I mean he's definitely helped steer this ship and uh, make it into this thing. But yeah, I mean, if you had asked me when I first did the first recording if I thought that this was going to be a thing that I was going to take to Europe like five years later, right. I would have never said yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited about that, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. We've, we're doing Europe for th- pretty much, tw- it's like 20 days mm-hmm. there, and then we come back and we do home for a little bit. Well, some of us are. Um, Cindy will be home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we do this run from Tree Fort, which is a big festival in Boise, and work back and finally get to play Nashville again. Yeah. Um, that's More. the last show of that run. And then there's nothing, like, I don't, there's a couple of things that are possible, kind of like one-offs and maybe a few shows around it. But, I mean, like, the B-52s were kind enough to give us this entire block of time because they, you know, they want to play shows too and do that, do their thing. Right. So, um that's gonna probably kick back up uh, and uh, in the meantime I have some shows that I'm probably gonna be doing with a new artist um, that you know if everything works out because auditions go so much differently whenever there's like pretty big management teams and everything mm-hmm. you'd have a thing and, it, and this one was a cool one and uh, that was another Ken Coomer recommendation because he's a good man mm-hmm. uh, so we'll see Yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what 2018 is gonna totally hold. I think I know. I hope I'm. I hope I know. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been great. Well, I mean, you thought you knew when you were getting ready to move to LA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just let's not. I, I'd like to yeah, not break another another appendage. That yeah. was my fourth break of my life. So I really that was the fourth time you broke a bone. Yeah, I broke my left. No, I broke my right arm. The uh, ulna when I was in fifth or when I was five. I was in first grade. I broke my left arm when I was. 11 or 12 uh that one had to have a cast the other one just had to have like a splint uh and then i broke my leg when i was in high school i was this freshman i twisted it on a diving board it needed to be replaced or like re-sanded you know like have the sand reapplied and it was too slick and so i slid and my big toe 
caught the edge and didn't slide off. Mm. So I would have rather just fallen and like scuffed myself on the board, you know, pretty gnarly. But yeah. instead, it caught and it spun. Or I my leg spun around and I heard it. I heard it go. Oh. It was a crack, so I didn't have to have a. Um, we gotta put you cast. in a bubble, man. We gotta put you in a. Well, you know, suit. so like I had a pretty frank conversation with the orthopedic surgeon because he was like, "You do have any questions?" And I said, "This is the fourth bone I've broken in my life." Like, will you legit tell me if it feels like it's soft mm -hmm. or anything? And so he does it. And he's like, you know, I think you're just really unlucky because you got some really hard bones. <laughs> like, and uh, so, I, you know, I, and I guess that that's just what it is. And most of them, I, honestly, all of them have, with the exception of the big one, all of them have been from a twisting motion. I, I, the left one was when I fell off my bike and it, it was I was on a hill and that's what made it break because right. I, I landed and it wasn't the landing it was the twisting and then my left arm was uh, you know if you have a pull start lawnmower and it's a like a driving one and it hasn't been pulled started in like three or four years don't do it <laughs> clean the you need to clean the cylinder because you're gonna hit the gum spot and if no one tells you that because you're 11. And you're just like, I'm going to do this. And you pull really hard, and then it snaps your wrist back. Oh. And that's what broke that. And then, yeah, the twisting on the leg. So I think it – and there were always the small bones. Right, like, they're right, not the main – Right. Because those would be – except for the humorous. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm wishing you a, a, a prosperous and, above all, safe <laughs> 2018. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, thanks for talking. Thanks for sure. thanks for making the drive. Those of you should know, like Lemuel was coming through the area. He's rehearsing in Athens, and I told him where I live in Atlanta, and he was like, "Yeah, no problem. I'll be there." And today, I found out that he drove the hour and a half from Athens to Atlanta, to which it shouldn't be that long. It should not at all. But and for some I, reason, you know, I didn't really is. see a ton of traffic, and I think it's just because you were kind of like nestled in this part of Decatur, because there's, it's kind of a straight shot from Athens to Decatur. Yeah. In certain, in like most quadrants, and you live kind of in this central point between the two, which is ultimately where I found, like I got off the exits and I was like, oh, it says I'm still basically 20 minutes from him. <laughs> right. Which is right. where that extra 20 minutes came in. Yeah. But yeah, I checked it. I should have checked it later in the day, but I checked it like yesterday. Well. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's an hour. Right. But right. then just, I guess, like a little bit of traffic or whatever. Well, thank so, you. Thank you for making the drive. Everyone. Oh, yeah. Thanks for I talking. mean, dude, I've been on long plane rides. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. More to come. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know. Well, safe travels, man. Thanks for talking. Yeah. Thanks again to Lemuel for sharing his story with us. Go check him out in Nashville. Go check him out on the road with Cindy Wilson. He's out 200 dates a year. I'm sure you won't have to look too hard to find him. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and please take a minute to leave us a rating and review there. We appreciate hearing from you. Also, once again, reminding you that you can subscribe to us on Stitcher, if that's where you prefer to do your podcast business. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Cheers.
There we go. Endorsements. Uh, yeah, let me know when you're ready. Ready. Uh, I'm a Vic Firth educator technically still, which is kind of like an artist. Mm -hmm. It's very, you know, we'll just say Vic Firth. Sure. Uh, Pisces cymbals and uh, CNC drums. That's it. Cool.